Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, the first service smoked you on that one. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Good to have you here today. My name is Randy Wasink. I happen to be one of the founders of Keystone. I have the privilege of leading Keystone with Brady as co-leaders. And it's really good to have Brady and Sarah back because I don't want to do this every day. So thank you. I miss you guys. Uh, I'm not a big fan of refrigerator uh, magnets, just to say a little confession there, but I've got to admit that some of them are often true, and here's a few that I've enjoyed. Don't you wish some people would use, start using glue instead of lipstick? Here's another one. Coffee makes me do stupid things faster. <laughs> and this is my favorite one. I'm not responsible for the way my face looks when you talk. My wife has a couple of them that are pretty cool. Uh, uh, One of them is uh, well-behaved women uh, seldom make history. That's true. And another one that says people who say it can't be done shouldn't interrupt those of us who are doing it. Now, some sayings are just tried and true. A leopard never changes its A bad workman always blames his. A bad golfer always blames his. Actions speak louder than. And then this one, it's just the one that we're going to set up. It's going to set up where we're going today is this. What goes around comes around. Eventually, someone who did something nasty to you will need something from you. It just seems to be the way life goes. And when it comes around, And when the tables are turned, now you have the power. What are you going to do? Well, little story. Our oldest son uh, was was quite a handful. Uh, He was definitely a chip off the old block. Um, Did some just crazy things. He was a kid that often got pulled off the stage during the Christmas program, you know, because bugging other kids and stuff. Well, we got an invite from a younger couple who was recently married to come over to our house. Yes, they invited themselves over just to hang out for a little while. And what we didn't see coming was that what they really wanted to share was their observations about our parenting and how they, if they had a two-year-old, would handle situations differently than, than we were handling them. Like, you know, when he got up in a restaurant or he interrupted a conversation by going, Dad, Dad, dad or he didn't immediately go to bed the first time when or he was playing with his toy and he drifted out of the predetermined designated toy play area and basically what they were saying was we sucked (laughs) and and they could do significantly better even though they never had a kid and uh, we were filled with many emotions yeah We were hurt. We were hurt because, one, I think we genuinely offended them, and and they believed that they could do better. Uh, We were hurt because we were trying our best, and sometimes a two-year-old, as you may have discovered, is just not fully compliant. (laughs) And after a sense of hurt, we were also a little humored. I mean, they made it sound so simple. Parenting was simply a set of formulas that, when executed properly, would result in a consistent behavioral outcome. 
And we, along with other new parents who we were doing the journey with together, were reading books like Parenting with Love and Logic, and we were also talking with people who were further down the road than us, and we were trying to learn from them. And they affirmed that, indeed, our son was a handful. He's like his dad. But we were doing okay, and eventually, hopefully, eventually, he would grow out of it. And eventually, he did. Uh, in fact, this is my father, uh, retired Sergeant Detective Lauren Wasink, pinning a law enforcement pin on his grandson when he graduated from Federal Law Enforcement Academy. He got to do that before he died. And my son now gets to carry on a tradition of his grandfather of proudly doing law enforcement, treating all people with dignity and respect. And so I'm proud of how that turned out. Well, we thought that eventually a young couple's perspective, this young couple and their perspective will, will eventually change someday when they have kids. But in the meantime, it was frustrating. It was hurtful. It was, it was, we felt we were always under their judgmental eye. Well, a few years later, you know what happened. The couple had a child of their own. And as you might imagine, things didn't go smoothly. And, uh, and, and all of their vast knowledge and formulas and certainty that they had just turned into mist and evaporated away. And they were just at a loss. And we watched. And we watched. We watched them get more and more frustrated. And we saw them in the same emotional places that we were in in the past and and honestly, we, we felt for them. Because parenting is hard. But admittedly, it was pretty fun to watch. <laughs> and then that moment came. Acknowledging that they were now in this place themselves, everything has changed, and this unasked-for apology was given. And they began to ask for advice. Remember the saying from a few moments ago? What goes around comes around. And when it comes around and the tables are now turned and we, the accused, the wronged, now have the upper hand, we hold the power. What are we going to do? Well, this morning, we're going to consider what could be done in that moment. And then we're going to ask even a better question. What would you do in that moment if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? It's the question that lies at the center of the life of our main character named Joseph. And in fact, it's the question that comes up over and over again in Joseph's story as we read it. And I'm positive this question comes up in our stories as well. The story of Joseph is found in the very first book of the Bible called Genesis. And the Bible is really a book of 66 books put together, a collection of books separated by two covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. And this is in the very first book, and it starts out with, in the beginning. So it makes sense it's the first book. Now, just to want you to get a picture of something, no matter how bad your life was, Joseph's was most likely worse. And no matter how good your life has been, Joseph's was most likely better. He had huge lows 
and huge highs. And whatever he found, in circumstance he found himself in, Joseph remained confident that God was with him. So, here's a brief recap of his story. Joseph was the favorite son in the family who had great riches and great promise. He was number 11 in the birth order, but he was number one uh, to his father. And because of that, Joseph's brothers hated him. They abducted him. They told his father that he was dead. And that worked out okay because Joseph eventually signed a lucrative deal uh, in the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And uh, I think it was a pinnacle in his career there. But in reality, Joseph's brother sold him to some slave traders who took him 500 miles away to Egypt. He was then sold to a guy who works for Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, as he was sold as a slave. And Joseph was on one very unpleasant detour. He isn't where he'd hoped he'd be or where he planned he'd be or where he dreamed he would be. Nonetheless, at this point in the story, we read something really strange. That the Lord was with Joseph. And we think, no. If God were with Joseph, bad things wouldn't happen. When God is with us, bad things don't happen to us. Do they? So, What Joseph did, what did he do in that dark period of time? The text says that he believed that God was with him. He was present, that God was present on Joseph's detour. Now, Joseph, on the other hand, stayed present with God as well. He didn't numb out, he didn't tap out, he didn't zone out. He stayed engaged. And as the story continues, Joseph was falsely accused of rape, He was thrown into a prison for what could have been the rest of his life. And once again, the text tells us that he remained confident that God was with him. And Joseph kept moving forward one step at a time. And he himself stayed emotionally present with God. And eventually, he's called out of the dungeon to interpret a dream, a strange dream that the Pharaoh had. And he does that. And minutes later, he's the second most powerful person in Egypt. And in the good times that followed, Joseph remains confident that God is with him. Joseph has an ability to do something that I honestly, I struggle with. And my hunch is that some of you do too. When things go poorly, I tend to think that God's not with me. He's absent. He's, he's busy, he's, he's doing something else, he's working on a project for you, you know, one of you. And when things go well and super, I think God was with me for that period of time. And even if my head knows otherwise, there is some programming in there that seems to kick in. And if things go bad, it's because of something I did or something I said, or someone I heard, or I disappointed God some way, and he withdrew his presence from me and put it over there. Joseph had a faith that was not thrown off by the downside or by the upside. Think about that. To me, that's amazing. All right, Pharaoh had his dream. 
he dreamed that there would be seven good years in Egypt and seven bad years. And Pharaoh believed that Joseph accurately interpreted his dream. And so he puts Joseph in charge of storing up all the grain for the next seven years. And he stores the grain in cities all over Egypt. And then the famine strikes. And this is where we're going to pick up the story today. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? This is Jacob. He said, I heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Now, at this point, remember, Joseph thinks, I'm sorry, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead, okay? So then the 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now, those are the same 10 brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. And I think that old saying of what goes around comes around got generated that very day as his brothers started walking step by step to Egypt. And this is how the story goes. And then, by that time, Joseph is 40 years old. Remember, he was 17 when his detour began. And then, the story goes on, now Joseph was the governor of the land the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. And he spoke harshly to them. Now, Joseph obviously looked like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He was wearing Egyptians' clothing. He had a haircut like an Egyptian. And he spoke to them in Egyptian through an interpreter. So they really had no idea who he was. They probably assumed he was dead because there's no reason slaves lived very long in that day because they, so they wouldn't think that he was even alive anymore. But now, now, Joseph has the power. One word from Joseph and they'd be wiped out. And suddenly, the guys who treated him the absolute worst are at his mercy, bowed down in front of him. And there is nothing they can do about it. So I wonder, what will he do in this moment? Joseph isn't the first human in human history to deal with something like this. We find yourself in a place where the person who hurt you now needs something from you. It just seems to be the way life works. The people who have hurt you the most will someday eventually likely need you the most. And the people who hurt you will eventually need something you have. And in that moment when you have the power, you will have a difficult decision to make. Imagine you grew up in a home where mom and dad weren't who you needed them to be. And unfortunately, I realize that that's not something that some of you have to imagine, so I'm, I'm sorry. But you just couldn't get out of that home fast enough. And then they got older, and they need you. And you think to yourself, why would you come to me? Have you forgotten have you forgotten the graduation that you missed? The games, all the soccer games that you missed? Have you forgotten what you said about me to my friends? How could you come back to me for help? The tables have turned. And what do you do? 
or perhaps it's a brother or a sister, and your brothers are, and your sisters uh, regularly mistreated you, and, and you hated them for it, and, and then eventually you landed on your feet, but they didn't, and now they're in a place of need, and they come to you for help, and, and you think to yourself, are you kidding? Have you forgotten? You made my childhood awful. I hated myself, and I hated you. Or perhaps it was an ex. The divorce and the the custody battle was just terrible, and you never speak to each other. And then one day, circumstances shift, and he or she needs your help. And their disposition towards you changes, and they ask you for a favor, and you know something's up, because they're finally nice for the first time in years. They may even pay you a compliment, but you you begin to taste revenge, payback, because in that moment, you have the power. What do you do? Maybe it's subtler than that. Maybe you were hurt or abused, and you're now in a position of power, and and something in you wants to make everybody pay, somebody pay for what was done to you, even if that other person's an innocent person. Are you someone who grew up with a parent in a home where your mom or dad couldn't be trusted? And now you're married and you don't trust your spouse because of that. And without trying, you're making your spouse pay for the sins of your parents. And most of us can imagine the hurt that we can bring. We maybe even find some time ourselves spending glorious time in our mind, playing out the options and the way we could pay back and hurt them. But what might you do if you really believed that God was with you? Well, let's see how the Joseph story plays out. He starts about by accusing them of being spies, and they're terrified. And he throws them in jail for three days. And then he calls for them, and and all of his brothers come in front of Joseph, and they tell them that, well, we are from a family of 12, but one of them went missing years ago. And they're all here except for the youngest one. And Joseph says, huh? Really? Prove it. Bring that youngest one back to me so I know that you're not lying. And just so I know you'll return, I'm going to keep one of you in jail. And so one of the brothers, Simon, volunteers. And then Joseph gives them the grain that they came to buy, and they make their way home. And then when they get back home, Jacob counts like dads do, I guess, and notices that a brother is missing. And they explain, well, dad, there was a a complication. Simon is being held in Egypt, and all we need to do is bring Benjamin to prove that we weren't lying about our youngest brother. And Jacob says, you're not taking Benjamin. I lost Joseph, and Benjamin is now my favorite son from my favorite wife, and I would die without him. I'm thinking, wow think Jacob needs a parenting class. Dad, what about Simon? He's still back in jail. Well, kids, I guess that's tough, but you're not taking Benjamin. So they go on with life. Simon sits in jail in Egypt, and yes, Jacob needs a parenting class. But the famine gets worse. And eventually, Jacob and his family run out of grain. And Jacob comes to the boys and he tells them, 
boys, you need to go back to Egypt. We need to get some more grain. And they say, well, yeah, we can't go without Benjamin. If we do that, you'll never see us again. And Judah steps up, one of the brothers, he says, Dad, on my life, I will make sure that Benjamin returns because we don't dare to face that guy in Egypt without Benjamin. They're starving. And finally, Jacob relents, and they go back to Egypt with Benjamin. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he weeps. It's my younger brother. And he's consumed with this inner toil, or inner turmoil that we associate with memories. The turmoil of the feelings that we thought were behind us, long left behind, but, but now they're not. They're, they're standing there right in front of us. And his brothers are in the perfect spot for Joseph to exact revenge. Ever been there? You think, maybe God wants me, wants me to pay them back, using me as his payback instrument. Perhaps God wants me to be the hammer. Perhaps God wants me to be the club. Oh, I, oh, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. As we opened with one of the best Phil Collins revenge songs ever. Vengeance is mine and I will share it with you, says the Lord. Take them out. Why else would God bring them to me in the first place? They deserve to be punished. And Joseph has all the boys brought into this, to this room to have a meal with them. And he sits them down in their birth order. And now they're freaking out. How, how does he know our birth order? And he gives Benjamin five times as much food as he did the others. Awkward. And then he goes and he eats with the Egyptians because Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews. And the whole time, he's communicating with them through an interpreter. He's playing the role. And they don't know what's going on. Well, finally, he tells them, all right, guys, I believe you're not spies. He sells them the grain. He loads it up for them. And then he takes his silver goblet and he plants it. He stashes it in young Benjamin's bag. And he sends them away. And they're thinking, finally this is over. We're coming back unscathed. This is good. They get a few miles out of town. And Joseph sends the posse out to get them. And they arrest the brothers for stealing the prime minister's goblet. And the brothers once appear, again appear before Joseph and they fall on their faces. And they think, this is it. We're done. We're goners. And they begin to talk amongst themselves. We're goners. This is no good. I will never make it back home. Dad's done. And they have this conversation in front of Joseph in Hebrew. <laughs> they don't know he understands. And it goes on and on. And finally, one of the brothers, Judah, stands up. He says, sir, sir, I swore on my life to bring Benjamin back home to my father. Keep me as your servant. But please, please allow Benjamin to go back home. And I think it was at that moment Joseph saw an honest and real change of heart. And Joseph runs out of the room. And he just begins to weep 
and weep, things are changing. And he eventually he returns and he clears the room of everything and everyone except for his brothers. And then the story picks up. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Look at me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Oh, I bet that was a sight to behold. But a few of them needed to change their undergarments. And they are stunned. And they are terrified. Because the last time they saw Joseph, he was 17 years old. And now he's the prime minister of Egypt. And he has the power. And he has what they need. And he can have them killed. So what does he do? Joseph said, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And here at this point, right, we want to object. Joseph, have you forgotten? Have you lost your mind? God didn't send you there. Joseph, remember what happened when you were a kid? They ripped your robe. They threw you in a well. They sold you as a slave. They put blood on your coat. They told dad that you were killed and eaten by a wild beast. That's how you got here. God doesn't leverage that kind of stuff, does he? And Joseph would tell us, guys, you got this all wrong. See, God was with me. God was with me when I was living at home with mom and dad. God was with me when he threw me into a pit and sold me into slavery. God was with me in Potiphar's house. When she accused me of rape, God was with me in prison. God was with me when I went to see Pharaoh. And God is with me now. God may have been silent, but he has not been absent. And then he says to his brothers, So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. There's an extraordinary power when you can see God walking with you. Especially when there's circumstances you can't even imagine that God's allowing you to even walk through it at this moment. And in those deep, dark valleys of the shadow of death, God is often, at least in my life, he's often been silent. But he's not been absent. Joseph goes on, he says, Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph said, God's made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay, and you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, and you and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Translation, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life. Joseph, why would you do that? answer? Because that's what you do when you believe that God is with you. So all of Joseph's family comes to Egypt. They lived there and they raised their children and eventually Jacob dies and the brothers are like, oh boy, dad's gone. I'm starting to worry again. And Joseph reassures them. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. 
He reminds them that God took your evil intentions and he leveraged them for his purposes. And though he was silent all of those years, he was not absent all of those years. Your evil intentions cannot thwart God's plan for you or your family. And by the way, this family would someday be the family that Jesus came from. And I think we have a pretty big advantage over Joseph. In the background of our lives that he didn't have is a cross in which the Savior of the world died. And it's a monumental reminder that God does not give us what you and I deserve. In fact, he gives us exactly what we don't deserve, grace. And just like Joseph gave his brothers exactly what they didn't deserve, we have a choice to make when what goes around comes around and we are in power and we have the upper hand, we have a choice to make. And this is our big idea of the day. When you have the upper hand, revenge is sinking sand. We can either look back at what was done to us or we can look up at what was done for us. We can seek revenge or we can seek to follow the example of God. And we can give others exactly what they don't deserve. And as extreme as the story of Joseph is, we have one that's even bigger than that. We are sinners separated from God and we lied to him and we deceived him and we used him. We don't deserve anything good from him, yet he, and he has the power. And what did he do with it? Did he punish us? No. He sent his son to die for us. He did precisely what we didn't deserve. And the most courageous thing you will do is to forgive people who hurt you the most. Forgiveness is not for weak people because weak people don't forgive. Forgiveness is for people who have perspective. It's for people who choose to live as though God is with them in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. It's for people who choose to look up and not look back. It's for people who ask the question that was at the center of Joseph's life, what would you do if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? Yesterday, some of you heard the story of Christo Brand, and he was assigned to be the prison guard of Nelson Mandela. And Nelson should have hated him, should have despised him. And yet when he first walked into that cell to guard Nelson, Nelson stood up from his two thin mats and his blanket and with bare feet on a cold floor, he stands up, erect, looks Christo straight in the face and with a genuine look of respect on his face and said, good morning, sir. And that show of respect for that new prison guard and for the others who Nelson encountered and for those who had hurt him changed the world. As I wrap up, by the way, that young couple that came to us and apologized for uh, thinking they could do better, we swallowed our pride, mostly. And we tried to simply encourage them. And because of that, I have no regrets. And neither will you when you believe that God is with you in all of your circumstances. 
Would you stand and pray with me? Good morning, Father. I, for one, am so glad that you don't listen to all the sayings that we have. You don't read all of our refrigerator magnets. That you have a different economy. An economy that runs on the engine of grace. In Psalm 109, David wrote that you don't treat us like our sins deserve. And I'm grateful. So as we go through this week and the coming months, help us to break the cycle of what goes around, comes around. And give us the courage to self and self-discipline to interrupt it with grace and love. And instead of payback, let's live the example that you showed us. Remind us of Joseph and his trials and his good times. And in all of those good and bad times that he recognized that even in those worst and worst of times, you were with him. And he stayed with you just as you're with us and we strive to stay with you. Allow us to that, allow that to change our perspective. And that's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for coming today. We'll see you back next week as we kick off a brand new series.